This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Rescue by V.S. Pritchett. Once when I turned round as I got to the door and caught him looking at me, he dropped five books he had in his hands. There was a noise that made everyone stare. A thrilling noise, like a tire burst. The story was chosen by Jonathan Lethem, whose own fiction has been appearing in The New Yorker since 2003. His latest piece in the magazine, The Grey Goose, was excerpted from his novel Dissident Gardens, which just came out. He joins me from the studios of KSPC at Pomona College in California. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm good. So you chose a story by V.S. Pritchett today. Can you tell me about your connection to his work and, and how you first came across it? I'm fairly recent to his work. I had always gathered that he was one of those short story writers like Frank O'Connor or or Mavis Gallant, who I would find really elegant and beautiful. And, and I picked up the complete stories and I've been delving into it. And it's, you know, now I'm obsessed with them. I've, I've been assigning them to my students and analyzing them and trying to figure out how he does what he does. He's He's just a total sorcerer. So it's sheer enthusiasm. That's the answer. <laughs> what? How would you define his sorcery? Well, there's a way that he lets you into a world that seems completely stable and flooded with awareness, droll, endearing characters in full view, and then almost immediately begins pulling the rug out from under you and changing what you're forced to think about them or where you think the story is going. He's simultaneously a master of kind of a conversational ease and the the generous, fulsome depiction of the world as we know it, and a kind of a torturer who wants you to feel <laughs> at, at his mercy, confused, and, and have to revise everything you think about his characters by the end. He does that pretty well in, in this story, The Rescue. Why did you choose this particular one? It's a perfect model of how he begins overturning expectations very, very stealthily from the very first few paragraphs so that you both feel overwhelmed with surprise by the end, but also that there's no doubt that he'd prepared you in some way, that he's made you sort of subliminally ready for anything that might happen because of that process of pulling the rug out from under you. And it's also, it's just incredibly funny. I mean, it's just such a unerring view of certain kinds of human types and certain kinds of human experiences. The humor is really, really rich for me. Well, I think you've given us good warning that our narrator is somewhat unreliable. It's funny. Of course, that's right. And I, I never even think of that because I always associate that term with a sort of more front-loaded, heavy trickiness, like like you see in Nabokov or something. And, mm-hmm. and yet, in a way, I think maybe what Pritchett teaches you, if he's here to teach you anything, or as opposed to just delight you, is that narration is unreliable, mm-hmm. you know, that it's it's just baked in. And, and so it's not, for him, it's not a big thing. He's not wearing it on his sleeve. He's just unveiling it. Now, when this story was published in uh, 1973, Pritchett was 72. He lived to be 96. Do you think that uh, at, at this point he was he was at the height of his powers? Was anything diminishing? Is this sort of a, a classic story for him? I think, you know, what, one of the things that delights me about this one so much is it shows him applying his mastery to a world that's changed in some ways. There are tiny little inklings, you know, the, the beard's that a couple of characters are wearing when they come home from college. And he's not living in a time capsule. 
his style and his elegance and in some ways his tone evoke something earlier. But the world is allowed to become the present world. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't dare to hope that I could still be so relaxed and so commanding and also, you know, to write about what I saw around me in my 70s. -hmm. So uh, no diminishment that I can see. A few years ago, you came on the podcast, and at that point you chose a story by James Thurber. I'm wondering if you think if there's any parallel between these two pieces you've chosen. That's a great question. I was As I was reading the story again, I noticed there was a duck in this one. Um, <laughs> the last so story was the there's wood a duck. Parallel. Yeah, because the other one was all about a duck. So it's as if the Thurber's, Thurber's duck has wandered in for a tiny cameo um, <laughs> or, or to take a bow. But in both cases, I've picked stories that amaze me for their efficiency, their kind of quality of doing things at a glance, which, you know, is is characteristically understood to be one of the models for short fiction, not one we can all <laughs> easily attain. And I guess it's part of the New Yorker's tradition to favor stories that don't labor at their effects, but kind of find a way to dance off stage surprisingly quickly and leave you breathless. That's to me the, the obvious affinity that the two pieces have. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Jonathan Lethem reading The Rescue by V.S. Pritchett. After the bad spring, the first two or three weeks of that summer turned on a sudden blaze, and the pain went out of Mother's shoulder, and she let me buy the shortest miniskirt in town. My tall brother and his taller friend George came down from Cambridge with beards like barley, and when I went out with them, my golden hair seemed to flow from shop window to shop window as we walked by. The sunlight sparkled like the cymbals and trumpets of a regimental band in the park, celebrating a triumph. And it was a time of victory in our family, especially for Mother. Why had we got a socialist mayor at last? Why had the council given in after years of speeches, committee meetings, votes and letters to the papers, and agreed to turn the lake in the park into a Lido? Who was behind all this but Mother? On top of this, there was the annual pageant. She ran that, too. You ought to take a rest, people said to her. There was always someone at the door. People rushed in to see her while she sat at the typewriter, made her lists, jumped to the telephone. Get on, she would call to us. Get on with it. Don't stop. She was short, stout, and bouncing, born to rule. This year she was putting on King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Nothing to do with the history of the town, but pageants were an annual holiday for Mother. Instead of bossing the council, she would take a breath for a day or two, then start organizing the past. I was to be one of Guinevere's ladies. Every day, new bundles of plastic shields, helmets, spears, swords, and dresses were dumped in the house so that there was hardly room to sit down. And when my brother and George came, they added Africa to it. Thump, boom, and howls came off the records, and they larked about, dressing up in robes and swinging swords at each other get on? We would have done that much faster, but for the people she brought in to help. She rarely came home without some new adherent. Her strong glasses picked them out as she raced down the street on her short legs or looked out of the car window. She caught people suddenly as a frog catches flies and digested them without a blink. Just at our busiest time, she brought home the slowest young man in the town, a real plague called Ellis, a boy of 20. He worked in the library, I had often seen him there when she sent me for books on the costumes of King Arthur's time. We want him for advice, Mother said. Ellis was advice in person. 
Once he was in the house, we could not get rid of him. He sat among the helmets on one of the sofas, gazing at mother, worshipping her, and between long silences uttering deep opinions that came up from his boots. In this hot weather he wore a thick suit, a waistcoat, and woolen socks. Having got him for advice, mother never listened to him. The only thing I ever remember her saying to him was, Why don't you take your jacket off? We said she'd brought him home to get him to undress. Your boyfriend is in there, we'd say when she came in with a new pile of costumes for the procession. Tell Ellis to count these, she said. I would go up to him, shake my long hair from one shoulder to the other and say, For you, to count. One evening I accidentally let out our secret joke about him. Count these, Lancelot. Ellis ignored this. He lived for opinion, not for action. The Lancelot joke had started because soon after Ellis had adopted us, Mother lost the man who was going to take the part of Lancelot in the pageant. Every year an accident, Mother said. That is life. This year's Lancelot had been knocked off his bicycle by a dog and had broken his ankle. Don't worry, George said. You've got a Lancelot here. Promote Ellis. Mother ignored this, but kept on worrying about her difficulty for days. Ellis for Lancelot, we kept on at her. Don't be malicious, Mother said at her typewriter. He lives alone in lodgings. What was the real Lancelot like? Tall, I thought, with a fair beard and cool blue Cambridge eyes like George's. But George said, don't be a nit. Arthur's knights were dwarves. Bad food in the Middle Ages made everyone short. Perhaps he was right. Our Lancelot was a stump, not more than five feet two inches high, with a low forehead and heavy arms. His habit of uttering opinions was a way of making himself seem taller. He hauled up his views from some deep mine inside him, and as they came up he stood on tiptoe and his chest swelled and, ignoring us, he unloaded them like coals for mother alone. Our joke did not make Ellis wince or laugh. Rather, it made him grow in importance and gaze even more profoundly at mother laboring at something he would sooner or later bring out. And when Mother came in and said she had found someone exactly fitted for the part, we saw Ellis looking scornfully at us, and even more admiringly at Mother. I'm glad, he said. If you had asked me, I would have had to refuse. Refuse Mother? We were amazed. On principle, he said. We were putting the helmets into boxes, and we stopped. He was an adulterer, Ellis said. We all laughed, except Mother. It happens to be a fact, Ellis said. But, we all shouted together. We were soon at it, shouting about history, art, and life, love, and sex. Let him speak, said Mother, getting on with her work. It has nothing to do with history, he said. If I had my way, I would pass a law making adultery illegal. If a man or woman committed it, they would be brought to the courts, tried, fined two hundred pounds, and imprisoned for two years. Why two hundred, my brother said. Back to the Middle Ages, said George. You say you're not influenced by history. And when they came out of jail, I would have them branded on the back of the hand. With the letter A, like in Nathaniel Hawthorne, I said. I had read him that term at school. Ellis looked at me and for the first time smiled, congratulating me for having read the book. That's right, he said. You mean you'd make Lancelot march in the pageant wearing a letter A on his hand, George said? Yes, said Ellis. You'd make it fashionable, said my brother. Anyone like to join the club, said George, dancing about and waving his hands. I've got my A. I see you've got yours. What about it? Because George did this, and to show I was on his side, 
and to make him take notice of me instead of going off with my brother all the time, I went to the desk by the window and drew a large A on the back of my hand. Look, I said, showing my hand to all of them. A. You won't get that off in a hurry, my girl. It's marking ink, said Mother. George looked coldly at me. The strange thing was that, having uttered his thoughts and seeing us make fun of them, Ellis went flat and bewildered. He looked at Mother in appeal. He sat back on the sofa, astonished at the ruin of his ideas. Do you think it would make it popular? He asked Mother simply. Mother was holding up a red robe against George. Is this too long for Kate Mason, she said. I haven't been listening. And to be kind to Ellis, she changed the subject and said to him, The mayor's opening the Lido tomorrow, three o'clock. Bring your trunks. It is strange to see adoration harden into fear. Ellis seemed to step back to the shadows of his lodgings suddenly, away from us. I can't get off from the library tomorrow, he said. A simple statement, of course, but a contradiction of Mother's order. She was not used to being refused anything. She put the robe down. I will speak to Mrs. Laux, Mother said. Mrs. Laux was the librarian, and when Mother said speak, she meant she would require Mrs. Laux to do as she was told. One shock leads to another. Ellis stood up and looked fiercely at me and obstinately at Mother. I haven't got a suit, he said. There are plenty here, said Mother. I can't swim, said Ellis, drawing on hidden capital. That doesn't matter, said Mother. We'll teach you. Ellis moved back towards the door of the room. No one can teach me, he said, heaving up a load of pride into his chest. I hate water. My father was a sailor. He couldn't swim. He drowned. How awful, I said. He turned to me and said, He left my mother. She died. Until now, we had never thought of Ellis as a member of a family. We hadn't even thought of him as a human being, except in a general way. Seeing he had silenced us, he added information that built up the tragic distinction of his family. Very few sailors can swim, he said. They are fatalists. Ellis, our fatalist. Mother saved us. Don't worry, she said. There'll be a crowd there tomorrow. But having made his stand, Ellis got even bolder with Mother. I don't like crowds, he said. They'll ruin the lake. Her adorer was telling her that she was wrong. She, who had fought for eight years to get the Lido for the town, he was defying her and was appealing to me. Mother was at her sewing machine. You mustn't hate so many things, Ellis, she said. After he left, I said, he looked as though he was going to cry. No, his eyes just swell up when he looks at you, my brother said. I'll say, said George. I knew that. Ellis had very large eyes, and they did swell whenever he saw me come into the library. I used to make up questions about books until I made him leave his desk and say, I'll get that book for you. I used to have a special look that said, You can do better than that, or Why do you do what you are told? And I had another very long look that said, I know that when you are saying things to mother, you are really saying them to me. You are frightened of me. And I would run my forefinger slowly down the edge of his desk as we talked. At sixteen, a girl likes to see what a young man will do. I hung about while other people came to the desk because I could see I was embarrassing him. Then I went off. Once when I turned round as I got to the door and caught him looking at me, he dropped five books he had in his hands. There was a noise that made everyone stare. A thrilling noise, like a tire burst. Mother got her way with the librarian, of course. Ellis was forced to come with us to the lake. As socialists, she said, it was our duty to see that all mankind was happy. 
we drove to the park gate, left the car, and walked the last 200 yards across the grass. George and my brother ran on fast to get into the water. I raced with them, for I liked giving Ellis a distant view of myself, and left him and mother dawdling behind. Ellis had the bathing trunks under his arm. The bundle looked like a book he was going to read. Presently, mother broke into a trot to make up for lost time, talking as she ran. Ellis trotted too. "'I can't run in these shoes. I've ricked my shoulder,' said mother as she puffed up to me. She sat on a stone bench on the stretch of concrete where the diving board and the newly built changing rooms were. She shook her shoulder to get her breath back, and as she gazed at the Lido, she said, "'Have you ever seen anything so wonderful?' I went off and got changed. The lake was a sight. I don't exaggerate. There were thousands of people, well, no, hundreds, in the water already, others queuing up at the gate, and others lined up too deep to get at the diving board. A flag was flying over one of the buildings. For years, the lake, which is large and with willows hanging over the far bank, was simply ornamental and empty, except for a few ducks quacking on it. Now it was striped with bodies near the water's edge, and farther out there were hundreds of what looked like coconuts, the heads of the swimmers. Half the town was there. Ellis's first words were, They've smashed it up. A good description. Usually still or rippling, the water was now like a splintered mirror, and there was scarcely a yard between any of the people, at any rate, not near the shore. A mob, Ellis said, opining. Mother said, Ellis, you mustn't be a snob. Ellis heaved up a thought. I prefer nature, he said. But people are nature, Ellis, Mother said. Ellis was taken aback. He frowned. One more opinion had been ruined. His love for Mother had gone. Come on, said Mother to Ellis, taking off her glasses and greedy for the water. Get your things off. And she went off to change. I had already changed, as I have said, and was made to stand guard over Ellis, who did not move. I saw he was plotting to slip away when we had gone in. I took a walk here last night. I often go for a walk, he said quietly to me. It was still light. No one was about, only a dog. You could see every branch, every leaf of the trees reflected in the water, going down and down and down. It's only ten feet deep in the middle, I said. Ten feet, he said, and stepped back, wiping his forehead with the back of his hand. He was disappointed with me when I laughed. There were shouts from the diving board where a very thin man with his trunks flapping on his bones was bouncing up and down. Then up went his heels. George and my brother followed him. I was longing to go. At last mother came out, bulging in her old-fashioned black suit, an embarrassing sight. Please get into the water quick, I wanted to say to her. But she waited to say to Ellis, Why haven't you changed? Ellis gave her a lover's last pleading look and then went off miserably. He is scared, I said. He thinks he'll sink through to Australia. Look after him and see he goes in, said Mother, who was off at once to the diving board. She went in with a thump and a man said, Wait for the tidal wave on the other side. I was tired of waiting, but when Ellis came out, changed, I cheated. Good, I said, and left him. I was soon in the water. George and my brother were swimming out beyond the thick crowd along the shore. Mother was following them, and I raced after them. "'Where's Ellis?' shouted Mother when I caught up. "'He's back there. "'You oughtn't to leave him like that. It's selfish. "'He can't swim.' 
Teach him, mother said. I'll be along in a minute. Mother was always on at me about my selfishness. So after a while, I swam back and waded through the crowd. Good, I shouted. Ellis was in all right. He was standing scarcely waist-deep in the brown water. It was strange to see only half of Ellis. It made him seem more human. People bumped into him, and every time this half-Ellis was bumped, he turned his head as if to say a few words. He was standing lost, as puzzled as a bust by what was going on around him. Then his arm moved. He scooped up some water in his hand and had a look at it, as if to say something about water to anyone near. But since everyone was tumbling and splashing about him, he glumly tipped the handful of water back. When he saw me, he waded back three yards to the rocky bank, with the sudden vainglory of one baptized late in life, and got out. He stood with the water pouring off his thick white body and making a pool around him. He had the furtive look of one who has done half his duty. I had done mine. I left him and went off to the diving board. The crowd was still pouring in at the gate. The queues for the high diving platform and the diving board were long and busy. I joined one of them and looked out for Mother, and after a long wait I saw her. She was coming in. You couldn't miss her black suit in the crowd, and when she got to the shallow water she stood up, looking for Ellis. Then she ducked under, somersaulted and tumbled about like a kid. She was enjoying herself. Someone turned round and saw her bottom and gave it a slap. I wished she wouldn't make an exhibition of herself, but no one in the water noticed her much. They were all packed together, splashing. I went for the high-diving platform. On my way up the crowded ladder, where people were so slow, I looked again for Mother and Ellis. I didn't see her at first, but I saw him. He was still standing on the bank, dripping, with three or four youths nearby. He was touching one or two of them on their arms to make them listen to him. They nodded and turned away. Then he pulled at them again and started pointing. I got slowly higher up on the ladder. Ellis had not got the attention of the group, and his opinions were increasing. He was still pointing. Presently his shoulders straightened, and his chest filled out. An enormous opinion was coming out of him, one that made them draw away, gaping shiftily at one another. And then I saw Mother. I saw her face as she rolled over on her back in the water. Her mouth was open, and her face was dirty at the lips, and both her legs came up in the air. Her eyes were closed. A girl next to me on the ladder said, Look, that woman down there is in trouble. She's drowning. Although there were several people only a yard or so away from her, two of them were actually throwing a ball over her, no one paid any attention. I pushed my way back down the ladder, and then I saw Ellis turn and shout to the group that had moved back to consider her. I saw him step down in the water and wade towards her. He was alongside her, trying to get his arms round her body. She rolled out of them, and then I saw mud on her feet. He was wrestling with her and calling to a man to hold her, but the man's hand slithered. Then Ellis at last got her by the slippery waist, blew out his chest, and in a struggling lunge lifted her, heaved her, blundered with her, dragging her to the bank. I was down from the ladder and was rushing to the spot where a policeman was saying, Put her over there. And there was Ellis alone, carrying Mother, the whole of her, to a bench against the wall, with a trail of water following him and, after the water, a cortege of respectful people. I pushed my way among them and bumped into Ellis, who, being short, was shoved away by the crowd from the bench where Mother lay. She's all right, he said importantly. Then George and my brother ran up and pushed their way into the scrum. 
I can't give a clear account of what happened. I got to Mother. She looked so slimy and wet and swollen in the face. A lot of people were saying what a scandal it was, a woman drowning a few feet from the shore in a crowd like that and no one taking any notice of her, and arguments about what is nearest to the eye is hardest to see, and strong swimmers are always the weakest. And the same thing happened to a child at the town swimming bath last year. There ought to be a law and an argument about who pulled her out. Mother came back to life quickly, and the crowd thinned away, moralizing. When we got her wrapped up and sitting up, she was soon herself and very angry. I took her to the changing room and got her dressed. Horrible little man with his arms round me, she said. Quite unnecessary. It was Ellis. No, it wasn't, Mother said. She'd been pulled out by some brute who tore the shoulder strap of her suit, she said. We got the car round and put her into it. Ellis was alone and stood ashamed at a distance. He conveyed that he had not intended to intrude in a family matter. Come on, Ellis, my brother called. Ellis did not answer. He looked crushed. What he wanted to do was to stand there and give a full account of what had passed while he stood arguing with the youths at the water's edge. We pushed him into the car, and Mother said irritably as we drove off, Ellis, why don't you take off your waistcoat? She glowered, and when we got home and gave her a drink, she went on glowering. She hated anyone to take charge of her, and she hated our few cautious jokes. My shoulder went and I lost my balance, she said. She was firm that whoever interfered and brought her in, it was not Ellis. He had the tact to say nothing, and we were obliged to thank him with our glances. But slowly, as we began to think back on the incident, we came round, as always in self-defense, to Mother's point of view. We stopped murmuring thanks to Ellis. It was not quite right that an outsider should rescue Mother. And there was a change in him. He had lost his habit of gazing at Mother, and all desire to have an opinion seemed to have gone out of him. Before long, we were relieved to hear him say he must go. We didn't want him there all night. I went with him to the door. See you soon, I said, putting out my hand. He took my hand and held it hard. His hand was not like George's or my brother's. Three feet of water, he said. Three feet of water. Muddy at the bottom. Not in self-disparagement, not an opinion, though perhaps a criticism of something. Whatever it was, we both gave a shout of laughter and shut the door, and I walked to the gate with him, laughing, and the laughter so shook me from head to toes that I suddenly kissed him in a now-what-do-you-think-of-that way. All he said was, Come out. I'll walk with you to the corner. We marched down the street, silent as soldiers. We said nothing, and we could hear only the sound of our shoes. It was as if our feet were talking. At the corner, where the main road begins, cars were rushing by. Come on, he said, and again his hand gripped mine, and all the houses I knew in that street began to look different. We walked on, and suddenly Ellis gave a peculiar jump, like a frog, and we laughed to the next turning and the next, from street to street, bumping together. Where are we going? To the park. It's closed. I know a place where you can get in. And so we did get in. The everyday smell of the pavements went, and we stood in the night glow of the grass under the trees, which were as black as men against the town lights. The sky was like pink water above us, and we were sinking, sinking, sinking my heart thumping for breath, at the bottom of the world, until somewhere near the trees Ellis stopped his little jumps, and I sat down exhausted. 
I was clutching at him, pulling him under with me and struggling with the kisses that came out of him and throwing my hair back to get more. He looked wicked in the dark. The next day, to the bang-bang-bang of the band, we marched in the pageant. It banged the way my heart banged in the park. I wore a high conical hat with a veil hanging from it. Ellis had a green jerkin and carried a pike staff. I could hardly bear to look at him for fear of laughing. But when we got near the town hall and the band stopped, I said, Well, Lancelot, show me the back of your hand. It's not the same thing, said Ellis, and started to explain, but I stopped him. I taught him to swim that summer. That was Jonathan Lethem reading The Rescue by V.S. Pritchett, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1973 and can be found in his complete collected stories. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Jonathan, what do you think Pritchett is doing in this story? Is this (laughs) a portrait of a teenage girl becoming aware of her own sexuality? Is it something else? Well, that's in there. You know, people are constantly in this sort of post-identity politics world. People are always congratulating authors for daring to do someone of another gender or or nationality or ethnicity. And there's something about the way Pritchett does it that seems to me here so weightless. He just, he actually is curious. He's obviously, I think, you know, kind of feeling sort of frisky in the way he, <laughs> he, he, he writes about this this girl. Effectively, she's teasing and flirting both the character of Ellis and you know, trying to do it to the friend George, not effective in that case. But she's also doing it to the reader. And in a way, it's like Pritchett's doing it to the reader, saying, you know, look at this hair and look at me from the backside. And aren't I kind of <laughs> seductive? And there's something so charmingly amoral in his 
energies in this area. You could never bother to congratulate him for daring to do it because the story seems to say, well, isn't this simply the case that there are times when girls who may, you know, turn out to be ethical, responsible, deep people who would be very sort of annoyed at you if you objectified them. But isn't there a point in their lives when all they want to do is be sort of like noticed <laughs> for in, in the shop window for how their hair seems to flow like a river? And here it is. I've spotted it and I'm going to share it with you. You know, Pritchett's just simply putting his eye on something that is a part of life. Mm-hmm. And we accept it, I think, absolutely as a result of that. So that's in there. But also, you know, what hides behind wishing to be desirable, of course, is our desire. And it's the veiling of her own capacity to desire Ellis, the way it's just barely lurking in the story and all of the mockery and all of the dismissal is so fascinating. It's so well done. As you said earlier, this narrator isn't entirely reliable. I mean, there's the sense of this story that Pritchett has written or that the story that this girl is telling us. And then beneath that or behind that or or lurking, as you say, there's another story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is actually the the truthful one. Do you think that she is drawn to Ellis all along? I mean, I think, of course, in that sort of romantic comedy meeting cute way, the person who most aggravates you when you walk in, you know, like the way Catherine Hepburn is the worst thing that Cary Grant has ever seen at the beginning of <laughs> Bringing Up Baby. That's probably a big indicator of something, right? Well, we don't mm-hmm. necessarily cotton on to it in the story, even though it's in in that way a kind of generic move, because, first of all, it's done with such specificity. And he seems he's lampooned so mercilessly, but also, you know, the mother is in there. And, you know, when you when you call this girl an unreliable narrator, which I guess I, you know, here I am like kind of continuing to resist. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, but that seems like such a such a simple gesture. And the story is in its briefness and and elegance is not simple at all. She's not merely unreliable because she also is totally qualified in the most lucid possible way to be the narrator who will show you how the mother and Ellis are two of a kind at the beginning of the story, that they're kind of both full of this sort of self-definition and this puffing around. So she's reliable in one area and unreliable in another. And I think that's the magic. That That's how we are in life. There mm-hmm. are things we see and are, are the most qualified reporters of about ourselves and about our families, you know, where we might be able to be utterly incisive. I mean, I don't feel that the story is done in deep retrospect, where it's only when she's maybe, you know, the kind of implicit narrator might be 40, let's say, looking back on this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's not that she's only then able to see her mother in this light. It's quite clear to me that she sees her mother as comical and, you know, having a sort of weird Napoleon complex, even <laughs> even as she's a socialist and is claiming to be doing it out of a egalitarian love for humanity. She she actually really loves bossing people around. It seems to me that the girl in the story is already able to report on that with great insight. And so when Ellis enters the picture, we see Ellis first, not as an object either of desire or of indifference, but we see Ellis predominantly as a function of the portrait of the mother. Right. And since that portrait is so capable, that's how we're tricked. That's how we're beguiled, because we're seeing a narrator presenting something to us with total authority, and Ellis is a part of that dynamic. So whatever else he might be is lurking for this character underneath her own expertise, in a sense. Well, she does a very interesting sort of slow reveal when he comes in and she calls him a real plague and says she knows him because she's seen him at the library. But then not 
very much later, she says, it's not just that she's seen him at the library. She's been, you know, flirting with him and, and right. flustering him at of the course. library until he drops his books and, you know, runs yeah. off to get her something. Yeah. And she sort of half excuses that by saying, this is what girls like me like to do to boys like him. <laughs> As if it's just a <laughs> very you resist doing this? Br- broad, broad spectrum kind of thing. But of course, it is Alice who she's been flirting with, right? Yeah. And she keeps it from us at first. And, and yeah. there, there's this sort of, you know, early on, she talks about how he's gazing so adoringly at the mother. And, and later, it becomes clear that he's actually been gazing adoringly at her. Right. Well, and the narrator's telling herself and us that she's trying to get George to look at her. Yeah. The the friend, the tall friend with yeah. the beard. But we could make a parallel and say Ellis is apparently oriented towards the mother, but in fact has another target. And she herself, at a whatever level of acknowledgement, has a second target as well. Yeah. It's it's very interesting to kind of puzzle out when it becomes clear that Ellis is not just a figure of fun. Yeah. For her, but attractive to her. And there's a major switch at the moment that he starts to defy the mother. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting, and this leads to the other part of the story that I, I really would love to give some love to is, you know, the drowning itself, the fear of water and the episode not to be stinted in all this. Yes, it's really just a, like an anecdote that becomes the opportunity for this very, very nuanced narrative strategy we're, we're describing. But it is also a piece of Oh, just clockwork beauty. I mean, the the way the lake is depicted and the way Ellis's immersion in it is so diffident. And then the way the mother, who's been the battleship, racing towards this fulfillment. You know, we want this lake full of people, including Ellis, and then I will be at the center of it, <laughs> cavorting. You know, the way it turns into this other experience for the mother and the depth of her humiliation and the strategies of displacement of that humiliation, the way she insists that... You know, she hadn't needed rescuing and it hadn't been Ellis. I mean, what a brilliant piece of compressed comedy and 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 so insightful about the way also emergency moments unfold in such a homely, peculiar way in crowds. And some people never know anything happened. Other people dramatize and moralize about it and it becomes the story of the whole day. There's almost nothing harder in fiction than to do mass events persuasively, you know, to do the riot or the the theater full of people and really capture the texture of collective experience. Yeah, I mean, there's amazing stagecraft with the, the girl up on the ladder and yeah. the people tossing a ball over and Alice on the bank with this other group. I mean, just yeah. just the, the actual telling of it is so... Superb is the only word for so it. So staged, yeah. I mean, in, a, in the best way. Yeah. Why do you think the mother just insists on it having not been Alice who pulled her out? I mean, at this point... The mother is, for all, all her obstinacy, she's also got levels of unacknowledged insight, right? She sees that the energies are pulling away from her. And, you know, I mean, what is Alice for in the mother's world? In a way, the daughter and George and the brother already at the start of the story don't take the mother seriously. So Alice is brought into the home in a way to reinscribe, I'm the boss. Here's someone who takes me seriously when you don't. Mm-hmm. So She's got this injured dignity well before the drowning incident. She's already sensing in his moments of defiance and in the flirting that probably is visible to the mother, although she wouldn't articulate it, that she lost that battle too quickly, mm-hmm. <laughs> that her slave is rattling his chains and that her slave might even worse be enslaved to, to another, you know, to the daughter who refuses to take the mother very seriously. So the the mother is already, I think, nursing wounds to her dignity before her fall. And so 
she needs it to be a public event that is outside of the dynamic that's already betraying her, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, she's trying to marginalize Alice at that point. Also, there there are so many ways to interpret the title. You know, there's the rescue of the mother. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. the idea that she's maybe rescued Alice from this sort of dull existence. Or, in yeah. fact, perhaps Alice is rescuing the girl from this sort of flippant dynamic she's in. Or for just even more literally, in a way, from the summer where I felt sexy, but no one cared. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's one thing to be sort of looking at yourself in the shop windows, right? But you want that summer to be magical, to have a kiss in it. And George isn't going to do the job. So Alice rescues her from another boring summer when I felt ready for the world, but the world didn't care. And yet that kiss is described as a kind of drowning. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's that sky like pink water and this couple, right. it's sinking, sinking, sinking. and. Yeah, his use of those images at the end, I mean, it's just this sudden moment of lyrical lavishness in what's been a fairly dry presentation. Well, it makes you feel what adolescent sexuality really is, which is a discovery of something by people who are only telling themselves they know what it is in advance, right? And it connects the mother's wish for connection and immersion and, and community with the more inchoate private yearnings that are floating around, including, of course, in the mother, you know, Mm -hmm. to feel something or be something or be transformed. I also, I love the reappearance at the end of the the joke about Nathaniel Hawthorne and the the, uh, A for adultery. Mm -hmm. It's just so devastating because it seems like it's that moment in the story is passed completely and it just reconnects. It fuses together the earlier banter and that sense of, of Ellis that we can still remember. It's so fresh, really, but we wonder if she remembers it. Ellis is it, but of every joke. With English stories, one often has to ask oneself if, if class is an issue. And do you think do you think we're supposed to make something of this? I mean, obviously, the, the mother, despite her socialism, is well off. The brothers at Cambridge and Ellis is just slaving away, shelving books at the local library. I think that's absolutely in there. And uh, it's a time when, you know, with those guys coming back with their beards like barley and the fact that it's a miniskirt and we begin to put a real year on this story, I think it's like the ghost of class. Not to say that, you know, England sometime in the 70s threw off class entirely and has never gone back, but that the shackles of those injunctions were made slippery. You must know this uh, piece that Eudora Welty wrote in the in the Times in 1978 about uh, about Pritchett. It's one that everyone quotes, where she says, "Any Pritchett story is all of it alight and busy at once, like a well going fire, wasteless yeah. and at the same time well fed. It shoots up in flame from its own spark, like a poem or a magic trick, self consuming with nothing left over." That's uh, just perfect. And I I think of this story as being alight and busy at once. You know, it's very sort of continuous. I mean, it has these events in it, but no clear climax unless unless the very end is the climax. I mean, what what do you think of the pacing of this story? When I said at the beginning that his trick is to present you with what seems like a kind of a concrete world, definite solid people in it and a situation that, you know, might be very appealing and you'd like to see a, a writer develop it. It's, you know, that, that continuous quality that you're describing or that, you know, Welty gets at so beautifully by comparing them to poems or self-consuming blazes. There's this sense in which you never pause to regard any effect 
so much as you do experience it as part of a process. And the only place that process can lead you is to the very end of the story. There is no hesitation Mm -hmm. and there is no reframing. He doesn't say, well, so that happened and now we had to think about it and here's another thing. He just breathes the story out and that movement, which he achieves in either third or first person narration, that's the uh, sorcery for sure. Do you think that Alice and our narrator have a future together? I don't think that they continue. To me, it feels that I taught him to swim that summer. I mean, there's that tiny bit of immensity of retrospect, right, which is just lurking in so many short stories, especially written about adolescent experience, that somewhere, however barely enunciated, there's a thoughtful middle-aged person relating their coming-of-age experiences to you. And the fact that the story frees itself to use that phrase that summer. I don't feel that Ellis gets into too many other summers. Yeah. Something about that line says, as enormous as the surprise of Ellis was, and as much as he blossomed out of the initial condemnation of being called a plague, and the, what, the slowest young man in the town, he's obviously not the slowest young man in the town at the end of the story, I don't know that he gets another summer of her life. You know, reading this, I was thinking about your most recent piece of fiction in the magazine, which was taken from the novel Distant Gardens, which also dealt with a uh, a teenage girl who's sort of becoming aware of her, her power over the boys or the men around her, Yeah, uh, who also has a communist mother. Um, and I wondered <laughs> yeah. if, if this story was sort of haunting your mind when you were writing about Miriam. I would love to claim it because it seems like there's a kind of nice little conversation between them. But I didn't know this story when I oh, okay. uh, wrote that chapter that became the excerpt in the in the piece. I, I've been working on that book for so long. I took almost five years between the first things I wrote, which included that chapter, and finding a way to complete it. And my discovery of Pritchett really is in the last few years. So mm-hmm. this story is a new one for me. But I'm sure that at some level my heart leaped at seeing a Socialist in the story. And I thought, okay, <laughs> This one, well, this there's one's such for a me. lovely parallel between the two girls who are both trying things out and uh, and seeing how far they can go with their own power. I like the comparison. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Oh, great pleasure. Jonathan Latham's latest novel is Dissident Gardens. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store, where you can download more than 70 previous fiction podcasts, and also subscribe to The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene podcast. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com and join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.